I have asked for this radio and television time. I want to take this occasion to talk to you about what that law means to every American. I have tried to educate. If I have not succeeded altogether, I have certainly educated myself. I see a great nation upon a great continent, blessed with a great wealth of national resources. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Ratified, a podcast on the intersection of business and politics. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Folks, it's great to be back. It's been a hot minute since we've had an episode of Ratified. Last one dropped in late April. We did a recap on Mike Bloomberg's presidential run And then we took the summer off. It wasn't on purpose. It was just tough to get an episode of Ratified out as COVID uh, continued to ramp up. And, uh, you know, some priorities shifted. But, alas, we're now able to get this episode to y'all. And I'm really excited. The timing worked out nicely. uh, So let's jump right in. Uh, There are some exciting updates I want to get your way first. Ratified is on Spotify and it's on Apple Podcasts now. So, woohoo. Make sure that you're subscribing on there if you want to listen to previous episodes or be notified as soon as we drop new ones. I'd like to keep the consistency up now that we are uh, releasing this episode. So, hopefully, the back half of this year, even as COVID continues, uh, lends itself to some more episodes of Ratified. And I'm always looking for new ideas for the show. So if you'd like to pitch something my way, you have an idea, uh, send it to daniel.litwin at marketscale.com. Again, daniel.litwin at marketscale.com. And if it's a juicy one, it might just end up being the topic for our next episode of the show. So it is officially August, which means the fall school year is right around the corner. For some states, school has already begun. And most of the conversations taking up needed space in the education world revolve around COVID, obviously, and keeping students and teachers safe, and also how to launch remote or hybrid learning models. But even with the pandemic, there are deeper pain points affecting teachers, students, and the system as a whole that I feel need some analysis. So, today's episode of Ratified is going education-themed. We are asking some structural questions of our education system and its corporate and commercial relationships by honing in on a rather infamous organization, College Board, and an infamous situation, its 2020 AP testing debacles. College Board, as a reminder, is a nonprofit organization that runs a membership association for thousands of schools, colleges, and universities, providing them with SAT tests, AP tests, and college search and admission tools. So on this episode of Ratified, by analyzing how College Board tried to adapt their 2020 AP tests to the COVID-19 pandemic, analyzing what went wrong, and analyzing how the organization responded, we're going to try to better understand the modern trends of commercialization in U.S. education, how education policy supported, if not encouraged, said commercialization, the effects of high-stakes testing, and how organizations like College Board embed themselves in the education system and retain their influence. We're going to be hearing from two guests per usual to get full context on these complex educational relationships. First, we'll hear from Bob Schaefer, Interim Executive Director at FairTest, the National Center for Fair and Open Testing. Bob has a long history at FairTest, serving as Public Education Director since its founding in 1985 and is a member of its Board of Directors. 
He also brings perspectives from his time as research director of the Massachusetts Legislature's Joint Committee on Human Services and Elderly Affairs and as a research associate at the Education Research Center of MIT. Bob will be breaking down the nuances of how and why the 2020 AP tests were administered, as well as how College Board operates and retains influences within the K-12 and higher education space. Then, we'll hear from Carol Burris. She's the executive director at the Network for Public Education. She brings perspectives from many sides of the education world, including from her time as principal of Southside High School in the Rockville Center School District in New York from 2000 to 2015, and as a teacher at both the middle and high school levels. Carol brings a deeper institutional and structural perspective to this episode by helping us dig into College Board's business model, its leadership, and most importantly, connecting College Board and this summer's AP testing to trends of corporate commercializing tactics in education and years of high-stakes testing educational policy. But before we get to our guests, let's recap the College Board and 2020 AP test events that lead to this conversation and broader analysis. Time for a quick preamble. COVID-19's impact on education was apparent immediately. After a national emergency was declared in the U.S. on March 13th, the ever-extending social distancing guidelines and shutdowns hit schools, shuttering doors for K-12 as well as higher education. While schools figured out how to best administer remote education during this time, May and June loomed large, the months where standardized testing hits its peak. How would schools administer end-of-year exams, let alone statewide assessments? That was front of mind. And in Texas, where I'm based out of, for example, by March 16th, Governor Abbott had already waived requirements for 2020's STAR exam, which is Texas's statewide academic readiness test. By the 1st of April, Betsy DeVos and the Department of Education extended this move to the federal level, granting waivers of federal testing requirements for all 50 states and U.S. territories, circumventing assessment requirements mandated by the Every Student Succeeds Act. This decision to stop testing for the rest of the 2019 and 2020 school year extended beyond just the state and federal levels as well, making its way to some high-profile third-party testing organizations. International Baccalaureate, for example, canceled all of their tests as well and offered emotional support outlets for students instead. However, College Board, which administers tests to millions of students every year, surprisingly did not cancel its tests, at least not completely. The organization entertained the idea of a remote SAT test, but that was rather quickly shut down. What did continue as scheduled, though, was College Board's set of Advanced Placement, or AP, tests. For those who don't know or remember, AP tests act as a broader part of a curriculum in secondary schools to prepare students for college-level courses, and if they show a certain level of comprehension with the end-of-year AP exam, they then get college credit for that AP class. In response to the pandemic's limitations and an online survey of 18,000 students, 91% of whom said they wanted a modified test, College Board went ahead and decided to administer the AP test in an online format that they put together in the span of about two months. 
The test, varying in content per subject, of course, consisted of a 45-minute online replacement test containing about three-fifths of the content, with only about a fourth of the time to take the test, and for the same price of $94 per test. What followed were stories upon stories from parents and students who had major technical difficulties with the online test, including issues submitting pictures on the platform, as well as being unable to submit final answers for the test entirely. Our guests will get into more detail on some of the most common issues, including ADA compliance and digital infrastructure. But to help you all paint the big picture, College Board responded to this criticism by saying only about 1% of students out of the 2.2 million online tests administered had technical issues. And College Board blamed old computer browsers or students having poor Wi-Fi as being the source of the issues. Even at 1%, this still constitutes tens of thousands of students, and organizations filing complaints against College Board believe the numbers may be even higher due to those who couldn't take the test at all due to tech issues, or those who abandoned the test midway due to those same issues. So, what students were left with was a mix of inhibitors that botched this exam for thousands. An already critiqued dynamic of testing gatekeeping, with AP tests costing almost $100 as an entrance fee, Stack that on top of already existing socioeconomic restrictions affecting access to online services in general, meaning more affluent students with better functioning Wi-Fi and technology would have a better experience or were going to be the only ones able to take the test in the first place. And then stack on top of that a test itself that was rolled out with limited time, less content, faulty technology, and by an organization that is now disregarding said issues as minimal or inconsequential. So now, College Board, among widespread criticism, is embroiled in a class action lawsuit in California by Baker, Keener, and NARA LLP, and Miller Advocacy Group, which are representing high school students who, due to said technical problems on the site, were unable to submit their AP exams. The claims in the lawsuit include things such as breach of contract, gross negligence, misrepresentation, and violations of the ADA. And as the school year picks back up, and officials announced the return of standardized testing requirements for the 2020-2021 school year, what should our takeaways be from this testing debacle? And is it telling of any broader trends in education? And that does it for our preamble, leading us right into our first guest, whose organization, FairTest, is a plaintiff along with students in the California lawsuit against College Board. So let's go ahead and hear from Bob Schaefer, Interim Executive Director for FairTest, to get more context on how 2020's AP tests were administered, the consequences, and more. We're now joined on the line by Bob Schaefer, Interim Executive Director for the National Center for Fair and Open Testing, otherwise known as Fair Test. Bob Schaefer, thank you so much for joining us on Ratified. How are you doing today? Thanks for inviting us to be on. It's a pleasure getting your perspective on this, especially because uh, Fair Test is now deeply involved in 
this current iteration of conflict within uh, the rollout of the 2020 AP tests. So that's where I want to start is by giving our audience some context on what that relationship is. So, Bob, could you break down within this most recent iteration of college boards testing issues with the 2020 AP tests? Uh, How is fair test involved? What is your place within the current lawsuits? And uh, could you give us a little bit of history on just how you were brought in to the conversation? This year, because of high school shutdowns that eliminated the centers where advanced placement exams normally would be given, the college board rushed into the marketplace an entirely new type of advanced placement exam. It was an at-home, online, mini-AP. In the past, advanced placement exams have been in-class, three to four-hour exams, half multiple choice, half free response, extended writing, um, problem-solving type of questions. This year's test that they planned to implement was going to be only 40 minutes uh, and exclusively multiple choice. Um, They never had the technology to do it in the past. So in four months uh, from the time school shut down in March uh, until the test was administered um, in May and June, really only two months, um, they developed this brand new product. They had no time to field test it or beta test it. And in the first days of administration of new AP exams, fair test phones and emails were flooded with complaints from test takers high school students who went through the process and couldn't log on to the new exams, who took the test and it crashed in the middle, or who completed answering the test and then couldn't submit their answers for unknown reasons. And based on that, we began examining why this was happening. Uh, It turned out and the college board admitted that several percent of of test takers in the initial week um, couldn't complete their exams for one reason or another. And we found out that this brand new technology was totally buggy. For example, they had not designed it to be able to accept photos taken with iPhones, the most common smartphone in the world. The format that iPhones use was incompatible with the college board. And so kids who tried to submit that way, their tests were rejected. So after a a week and then two of dozens and then hundreds of complaints from test takers and their parents with incredible stories of of teenagers putting their fists through the wall with frustration, kids screaming and yelling because they had spent a whole year studying the test, paid $94, and then couldn't get their answers accepted. Um, We shared some of our experiences with some of the law firms FairTest has been working with, and one of them decided that This was a significant enough problem as to explore the need for litigation. Um, And the result of that was a class action lawsuit filed in federal district court in California, but covering the entire nation, um, seeking damages from the college board from test takers whose experience was not at all what they paid for. And because FairTest had been so involved in collecting information, uh, aggregating it, analyzing it, FairTest was also named by the lawyers as the lead plaintiff in that lawsuit. I'd love to hear some more uh, stories or just uh, recount some of what you heard from the students and the complaints. 
while they were taking the AP tests. while you were doing that research and compiling those complaints, what were the variables that stood out to you as being the ones that weren't addressed during the remote administering of the 2020 AP tests? And give us some context on what those consequences really looked like. Well, it starts at the beginning. Um, this year, for the first time, the College Board required students and schools to pay for the AP exam in the fall. So students who were going to take the APs in May of 2020 actually paid in the fall of 2019. So the College Board had in their pockets the fees from 5.3 million tests that were registered for, uh, typically $94 a piece. So we're talking in excess of $400 million in registration fees. But some of those kids had signed up for the test with Um, their legally mandated accommodations of extra time or special equipment. Um, And in the process of trying to get ready for the online tests, um, they were told, nope, sorry, those accommodations legally required under the Americans with Disabilities Act, they don't really apply. There is no extra time. And we can't give you some of that equipment. And by the way, if your home internet connection doesn't work, go to a McDonald's and take the test. It was this cavalier attitude of the test makers that the problem, the burden for dealing with this mess falls solely upon students. So find a quiet place in your house, sit down, hope you have good bandwidth and best of luck with the test. So even before the first test was administered, FairTest and other allies had raised concerns through the news media about likely problems with the test. Those concerns were bandwidth, server problems by the College Board, um, a lack of accommodations, et cetera, et cetera. And all of those things happened and much more. It turns out the College Board's new test wasn't ready for prime time. They simply did not have enough advanced planning and testing of their products to make sure it would work on the variety of devices, whether you know somebody has a uh, a PC or a Mac or is using a smartphone, a variety of operating systems, whether they're using uh, uh, Linux um, or Windows or uh, the, the iPhone format, they weren't ready for it. And so from the moment kids sat down to take the test, uh, more things went wrong. And it continued to escalate through the entire testing process to the point where students couldn't submit their exams, answers some students literally thousands and thousands of students, uh, once they had completed the test. So the frustrations and the problems compounded through the first two weeks of AP testing. And the College Board's response when kids had problems was just awful, an example of how to do customer service in reverse. Kids and their parents who called with questions for the College Board were referred to alleged customer support staff in the Philippines who didn't know what went on and who read um, uh, from scripts um, that didn't answer any questions. Test takers and their parents were promised callbacks by testing company employees that they never got. They were promised workarounds that never materialized. And through the entire testing period, um, none of the, some of the problems remained unaddressed. So literally we had kids who took the test and couldn't submit, who took the retest and couldn't submit, 
and then took what's called exceptions testing um, at the very end of June, and some of them weren't able to complete it. So kids wasted three days of testing, a full year of, of education and practice, and couldn't get a score from this exam. I think a major question for everyone involved, from parents to students to educators to orgs like FairTest, is how was this allowed to happen in the first place? Uh, I know, I mean, I, I'm very engaged with the education world, um, but I'm not a professional in the education world. And so to some degree, uh, maybe it's a naive question to be asking myself, but I ask, you know, how is this org uh, allowed to launch tests for a broad high school populace, uh, a test that often decides higher education outcomes, um, and at launch had jeopardized uh, integrity as well as difficulty in uh, accessibility. All, all of this seems like something that would have been caught at some point or would have been redirected. Obviously, that didn't happen. So I want to get your thoughts on why do you think this happened in the first place? What are the dynamics that allow for College Board to release uh, this test to the public in a way that wasn't complete? Um, and what do you think went wrong in that rollout process? The truth is that there is less public oversight and regulation of the standardized tests given to American school children than there is of the food we feed our pets. Two federal agencies regulate what you can put into cat food. There is no federal agency that regulates standardized testing. There is no test you have to pass to become a standardized test manufacturer. If instead of hosting podcasts, you wanted to be a test maker, you could hang out a shingle and bid on contracts. The result is that the testing industry is entirely self-regulated. There is, in addition to no government regulation, there's no industry like regulation as there is, say, underwriters lab for electrical appliances, and there's no formal consumer oversight body like a consumer reports. The industry determines what its own standards are and controls its own behavior. So the college board looked at the situation uh, when schools shut down uh, in late March and said, wow, we have $450 million in registration fees or so in our pockets. We gotta give some sort of test. How can we do it? And they cobbled together with chewing gum and bailing wire and the computerized equivalent of those old fashioned factors, this brand new test and put it out there. There are no requirements for pre-testing tests. Um, there are kind of standards of the measurement profession, which are honored in the breach with no enforcement, uh, but they didn't even go through those basic steps because of the rush. And, you know, it, it, it's, you know it's, a, it's a wild west marketplace in which some test makers can sell, sell the equivalent of snake oil. Now, how does that impact the other uh, public-private partnerships that have been steadily growing within uh, our educational system? Uh, is that seen within the education community from either private partners, you know, folks uh, administering ed tech uh, or LMS platforms, to the actual uh, public officials 
at the district level or the state level, you know, how does that dynamic sit with them? How is it received, this idea of a self-regulated testing industry? Is it something that everyone has the same opinion on? Is it differing? Give us some context on what those conversations look like within the industry. I doubt that they think about it. It's primarily a commercial relationship. Um, Many state education policymakers believe there is value in the advanced placement exams. Fair test is pretty agnostic uh, about their value. Um, But as a result, many states and some municipalities have contracted for the wholesale bulk administration of advanced placement exams to all students um, who take those courses in those schools. So taxpayer funds, not the funds of test takers' parents, are being used to sign up entire classes of kids. The, you know, it's, it's a lobbying relationship between the test sellers, in this case, the college board, which owns the advanced placement exams, and the state education bureaucracy, typically a Department of Education, to convince them that the AP tests are a good thing and get them to buy bulk contracts. But it's, you know, it's just a straightforward business relationship without regard, I think, to the any philosophical questions of is it even correct to be turning over testing to this private entity, an entity that takes in, in the case of the College Board, over a billion dollars a year that made over a hundred million dollars in net uh, revenue profits last year that pays its chief executive 1.7 million dollars as the college board did last year those questions are ignored for by education policymakers um, who think there's some educational value um, in the advanced placement exams and and push it forward without much critical examination I mean, the, the entire school testing venture in the United States is, States is unusual compared to most of the rest of the world. Elsewhere in other developed nations, tests are a governmental function. There are divisions of uh, national or uh, state equivalent education departments which manufacture and administer the tests, not private businesses um, that seek to make money out of that activity. All right, I think it's important to spend a little time talking about the dynamics within this testing industry and how College Board actually interfaces with our public education institutions, uh, because I think that is the area where uh, this conversation is, uh, I think, most needed unpacking what those private-public partnerships look like in education and what the role, if any, of organizations like this are in the future of our uh, testing and really in the future of our education. So let's just start with some of that context. Uh, Could you break down what the dynamics of those relationships look like between College Board and how it operates within the higher education system? Well, the College Board is nearly a century old, it was set up as a consortium of colleges, hence the name, it was a college uh, entrance examination board is its full name. And it was a cons- consortium of colleges in the Northeast originally designed to create a common admissions test. Uh, individual schools in the Northeast, Harvard or Amherst, each had their own uh, ed- entrance exam and that didn't make a lot of sense. So in the 1920s, 
um, a group of them came together to create a common admissions test. And through the, the middle of the previous century, the, the college boards test, which came to be known as the first the scholastic aptitude test, and then the scholastic at assessment test, and now just SAT, which the test makers tell us stands for nothing at all. Um, the SAT was a, a test used by a small number of colleges in this country. After World War II, uh, when many veterans came back and using GI Bill funding wanted to go to college and there was a, a, a rush of applicants, uh, there was more desire for admissions tests and the college board gradually became a national exam, the SAT, um, used for admissions at many colleges. In the 1950s, a rival company, which thought the SAT was not a very good test, was created to make its own test, and that was called the American College Testing Program, or now just ACT, uh, that makes a rival test that is administered to about as many test takers um, as the SAT is. Over the years, the College Board developed additional products in addition, along with its flagship SAT. It, it developed the preliminary SAT, and then it developed advanced placement or AP courses um, to give high school students who were capable of doing more challenging work the ability to take the equivalent of college and first year classes in their high schools. And that's how the AP program began. The, well, the SAT is not a monopoly because it competes with ACT. The advanced placement exams are the equivalent of a monopoly. There is no other US uh, program that offers courses and tests that give you college credit. And in fact, as of the present, the advanced placement program is a bigger portion of the college board's revenue sources than its original flagship, the SAT. So the, the AP has become the, you know, the, the big gorilla within the College Board, and it's a market in which there is very little competition. As a private and, like you mentioned, self-regulating institution, how does College Board maintain its position among this network of primary, secondary, and collegiate public education bodies? Because... I know that there is the opportunity or the ability to separate yourself as one of these uh, educational institutions, as a school or a college or university, uh, from College Board and from standardized testing in this way. So it's not like they are forced to do these tests necessarily. Um, I'll get into what those dynamics are. Or I'll ask you about them here in a second. But I just want to highlight that the University of California and their nine undergraduate bodies recently voted to phase out the use of SAT and ACT as a standard for admissions uh, over the next five years and eventually replace them with a new test that was developed by the University of California faculty members. So they're reassessing what standardized testing looks like for them. Uh, so to some degree, there is a a way out, right? Like if, if we're not liking College Board and its testing, there are opportunities to develop something else. However, that doesn't necessarily account for the uh, ingrained 
relationship that College Board has with our current institutions. And uh, to some degree, even with this debacle, it doesn't look like College Board is going anywhere necessarily. So I I want to get your thoughts on how does College Board maintain its position among our public education institutions? There's lots of pieces to that question. Let me try to unpack them. Um, Indeed, um, there has been a large and growing movement of colleges going test optional, saying applicants no longer required to submit ACT or SAT scores. FairTest has been the leader of that movement since the late 1980s, but it's really taken off in the last decade. Um, At the end of 2019, there are over a thousand colleges and universities including such notable institutions as the University of Chicago, Wake Forest, Brandeis, George Washington, et cetera, that were test optional for all or many of their applicants. And the pandemic combined with school and test site closures has further accelerated that movement. Since March, another 250 colleges and universities have dropped their ACT, SAT requirements at least for fall 2021 applicants. And that list includes all the Ivy League schools, most of the Big Ten schools, uh, 90% of the top 100 liberal arts colleges in the country. Virtually all the named schools are test optional for next year. Um, And that, you know, that's a serious problem for the College Board, both in terms of image and branding and in terms of revenues. If kids don't have to apply with tests, they may not take them. Add to that the cancellations of all tests this spring. The last SAT administered uh, was on March 13th, and many of those test sites were canceled. Um, The result being that the College Board has lost a tremendous amount of revenue because of um, the, the pandemic in a way that really hurts them. And here's the connection. If you already had between 900,000 and a million tests canceled at about 50 bucks a a pop this spring by forces outside your control. What was the college board to do when it looked like they couldn't give their AP exams anymore? And we believe that was the economic motivation for them cobbling together this faulty computerized exam. It's because they needed the money that fully half their revenues were tied up in canceled AP exams and in and canceled SAT exams and in um, AP exams for which they had received the money but could not administer them in the normal way. They had to do something. So um, the College Board is scrambling very hard to try to maintain its markets uh, in the face of schools backing away and outside forces um, like COVID-19, which are making it much more difficult to administer tests. For a while, the College Board said, um, well, what we're going to do is we're going to bring to market an at-home SAT that you can take in the privacy of your bedroom, if you have a private bedroom. But once they saw the huge mess created by the at-home AP exams, they backed off on uh, introducing that product at least until sometime next year. So it's very difficult times for the test makers with half of their revenues threatened um, and no end in sight for school closures, and which means test site closures, for, um, because of the, the, the virus. 
Could you also speak a little bit to how College Board uh, interfaces with uh, primary and secondary schools uh, while they're trying to administer these tests? So what does that relationship look like functionally when it's time to administer the SAT or administer AP tests? Um, How does College Board sell itself as, hey, this is something that you should do uh, local school district, or this is something you should do, college and university. Uh, here's what we'll offer, and uh, you know what what is the pitch necessarily to get people engaged with these tests, and then how does College Board actually administer them functionally? Well, it's really a great business model if you want to make tons of money. The College Board lobbies colleges to require the SAT or ACT. Uh, by promising them boatloads of other useful data. Because when students sign up to take the test, they also fill out demographic questionnaires that provide college admissions offices with lots of data that they can use for recruitment, uh, for building classes, for what's called yield management in the admissions uh, profession. And by the way, when students students who pay to take the test fill out this information in order to take the test, the College Board turns around and sells that information to colleges, particularly lists of student names the colleges can use to recruit. At the same time, the College Board takes registration fees from parents or sometimes school districts um, and puts that in its coffer. But the tests are administered in general, either in classrooms during the regular school day or on Saturdays at school facilities, for which the College Board pays nothing, by, um, during regular school day, by teachers who are paid by taxpayers, or on Saturday or Sunday testing uh, by guidance counselors and moonlighting teachers who are paid literally a pittance to uh, proctor the exams, but it's expected as part of their job. So the, the, the College Board takes in gobs of money, spends very little to administer the test, and then resells the data that kids have paid for the privilege of submitting onto colleges who use it to build the classes that they need. Fairtest has repeatedly challenged colleges uh, to say, you know, this economic model doesn't make sense where, you know, the colleges get the information and kids and their parents bear all the pain. What if you think the test data is so valuable, why don't you pay for it? And we've asked, how many colleges would pay for the cost of the SAT um, in order to get that data? We're still waiting for the first hand to go up. It's, it's, it's a win-win for the colleges and the college board and a loser for kids and their parents and the schools that administer the test. But a, a very shrewd business model on behalf of the college board and, and similarly by ACT. And the college board in recent years has gotten even smarter Uh, and and from a business marketing sense, instead of selling their test retail one-on-one to parents uh, who have to pay, would have to pay the fee individually, they've gone to state boards of education and said, hey, most of the kids in your your state are taking the the SAT already. Why not pay for all of them to take the test in one lump sum? We'll give you a a discount rate on the, the wholesale. And instead of having to process thousands of individual registrations. They sign up a state to do all that work. The state pays them 
a lump sum of money, and the test is administered to all students in about a dozen states as part of the public school testing program uh, that's required under the federal education law. So, you know, another, another big win for the College Board to get many more registrants uh, with much less work. If the dynamic is uh, as problematic as you break it down, why don't you see more primary and secondary schools separate themselves from administering PSATs or AP testing? Uh, Is there pressure from parents to administer these tests? Is there pressure from the state level to administer these tests? Um, Or, you know, what, what is keeping there from being any sort of immediate collective change from uh, different school districts or uh, even at the state level? I think you have to differentiate among products. AP exams, AP courses and exams provide, do provide something of value to students and their parents. At many colleges, though not all, if you do well on an AP exam after uh, once you've taken it, you can get college credit or place out of requirements. Uh, that saves parents tuition money. Um, theoretically, if students take a lot of AP exams, they could graduate a year earlier, which would be a huge savings on tuition, and they do get advanced standing at most colleges. Though some, such as Dartmouth, have decided that the AP courses are not as rigorous as their own first-year school courses and have refused to grant credit. It's up to the colleges. But, you know, students and their parents perceive something of value coming from the AP tests. Um, in terms of high schools, they're under a lot of pressure. Uh, public schools generally do administer the AP exam um, if they offer AP courses. A growing number of small private high schools, however, have rejected AP courses as inferior to the courses that their own faculty would offer um, and dropped out of the AP program. The PSAT and SAT are different. Um, they Schools admit them, high schools administer them because they believe that most colleges require them. And that was true until recent years. Now, for the class of 2021, more than half of all colleges and the universities in the United States will not require SAT or ACT exams from applicants in the fall of 2021. So that dynamic may be changing and the College Board likely faces a significant revenue hit. So there are some variables in our current uh, testing and education dynamic because of COVID that are a bit unavoidable. Some things that no institution or organization is really going to be able to uh, adapt to perfectly. With that being said, do you think that there was any scenario where College Board would have been able to launch AP testing in a way that took technical and individual students' abilities into account? Do you think it was ever an option or a possibility, or do you think that it was doomed from the start, much like the SAT uh, remote launch that was uh, pulled from uh, the uh, drawing board, basically? And uh, do you think that moving forward, we should even be talking about remote AP or SAT? In the course of putting together this lawsuit, Fertis has had the opportunity to talk to a number of IT professionals. Not a single individual with whom we've talked believed that it would have been technically feasible 
to pull together a high quality product of this type in two months, which is what the College Board tried to do. Uh, all of them agree that College Board made a number of significant errors in rushing this to market. That, and they will, some of them will be expert witnesses in our lawsuit. Um, the College Board should have bit the bullet. Um, their global rival for these kinds of, of products is a thing called the International Baccalaureate, which offers full year programs uh, that include, that have culminating assessments. And the International Baccalaureate recognized reality and canceled its culminating assessments uh, in the 2019-2020 public school year. But the College Board pressed ahead uh, with this contrived product that was doomed to fail and did. In the short run, the College Board faces a serious financial threat, not only from all the tests that were canceled, the SATs, but from the lawsuit in which we're involved. That lawsuit, which charges them with negligence, breach of contract, and a number of significant violations of basic consumer protection law, uh, seeks a substantial amount of money in, uh, in compensatory damages and half a billion dollars in, in punitive damages. The College Board screwed up badly here. But if you even accept their figures that 1% of the exams were flawed and, and the evidence is that it was five or 10 times that many, if only 1% of the exams were flawed, that would be 50,000 plus test makers who suffered disruptions at the College Board's hands. That's a lot of people that they're going to have to uh, uh, make whole, and that's going to cost them significant money. Moreover, it's unclear that they're going to be able to uh, administer regular SATs at testing centers this fall with new requirements for distancing and masking and, and, cleaning, and cleansing of, of those facilities and the unwillingness of many educators to serve as proctors in a Petri dish where you know dozens of kids from not just their classes, but from multiple schools descend on a test center on a, on a Saturday morning, bringing who knows what contamination uh, that the proctors will have to deal with on a close-up basis. Um, it is not a good economic situation. And indeed, the College Board's rival, uh, the ACT, which does not have advanced placement type products to, to broaden its financial base, has already had an engage in layoffs uh, and cutbacks because of reductions in revenue from lost testing this spring. Um, so it's, it's going to be a tough time moving ahead for the testing industry. And we hope that that stimulates a reevaluation across education of the value of these tests and the private businesses which promote them and manufacture them and administer them to our kids. Optimally, fair tests would like to see public oversight and control of the testing industry. We'd like to see something like the, the food, analogous to the Food and Drug Administration, which before you can sell a prescription drug, you have to prove to a neutral body that that product is safe and effective. You don't have to do the equivalent for standardized tests in any way. You just claim that it's a good thing and helpful and it's in the market. There should be a gatekeeper to make sure that the tests we give our kids have at least as much protection as the food we feed our pets. All right, Bob Schaefer, 
thank you so much for joining us on Ratified and for giving us this deep breakdown on College Board's place within our education system and some context on the recent 2020 AP tests. Again, we've been chatting with Bob Schaefer, Interim Executive Director for the National Center for Fair and Open Testing, otherwise known as FairTest. Bob Schaefer, thanks again for joining us. Always a pleasure. And if folks want to find out more about FairTest's work uh, or potentially reach out with concerns of their own, uh, where should we point them to? Uh, we have a very richly detailed website at www.fairtest.org. And we hope people go there. You can reach us through the contact link on that page, but you'll find lots and lots of information uh, through the search function. Fantastic. Bob, thank you again. We're going to take a really short break, but when we come back, we're going to be hearing from our second guest, Carol Burris, who's going to give us that structural analysis on College Board's place in the broader educational system, how it reflects some educational policy as well as trends of commercialization in the industry, and what our takeaways should be as we discuss the place of private entities and businesses in education. So stick with us. We'll be right back. joined now by Carol Burris, Executive Director at the Network for Public Education, to continue our conversation on College Board and the privatization and commercialization trends within education. Carol Burris, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing terrific, Daniel. Thank you for having me. Of course. I appreciate your insights on this. I think it's going to help round out uh, some real key takeaways for our audience. So, yeah, looking forward to jumping in. Uh, so, again, for some context, with our conversation, I'm hoping to communicate why College Board is just an example of a broader trend of commercialization and privatization in education, one that has actually been encouraged at the state and federal level for decades, and how we should begin to think about something like the bungled 2020 AP tests in a broader context. So let's start by tracking the growth of College Board uh, into the entity that we see today. Uh, so we'll just kind of keep it to the last 20 years or so, uh, and maybe even more recently since the appointment of David Coleman as president. Uh, so can you give us sort of a recap of, you know, within that time span? I know it's <laughs> a lot has happened there, but if you want to give us the key highlights, how has College Board expanded its influence over K through 12 and higher education in those 20 years and also more or less since David Coleman was appointed president? Sure. Um, <clears throat> College Board began with, as far as I know, um, with the SAT and the practice SAT test known as the PSAT um, and had a fairly small footprint for many years. Um, it then began to develop the advanced placement exams. The advanced placement exams are just that, they're advanced, uh, they're exams. So anybody can um, come off the street and take one of the tests. They're not, um, they're not linked to curriculum. However, what happened over time is that there was a 
growing demand for the tests and for schools to build curriculum around the tests in order to be able to advantage students in the college entrance process. So students could take the test and if they achieved a certain score, either place out of a course or even receive credit for a course at the college level. All of a sudden, people began to look at the proportion of kids taking AP exams in a school as an indicator of the quality of the high school. Some charter schools have even gone further than that and moved AP tests down to the middle school years. You see that very um, as a very popular strategy in basis charter schools, um, as well as some other charter schools chains like idea and it almost at least in my mind as a former educator becomes ludicrous i mean no one would expect that a student who took a course when they were in seventh grade to remember the contents of that course when they eventually went into college so as all of this happened uh, the college board itself began to expand and to even put out materials that kind of looked like a curriculum um, their largest competitor in all of this was the International Baccalaureate Organization, which has a very, very different strategy. Their um, courses truly are courses. They have embedded assessments. You cannot take their assessments without taking the course. Um, and as their popularity grew, um, so the college board then began to mimic uh, some of the ideas of the IB as well. Uh, David Coleman, when he became president, he became president right after um, he was really the um, uh, the brain behind the Common Core, um, which frankly was a big disaster. Um, I think most people would agree that that's the case now. Uh, and when he moved over to uh, the college board, what he then began to do was to try to reshape the SAT and the PSAT exam into an exam that was more aligned with the Common Core standards. And I suppose he's had some success with that endeavor, but um, I don't know that anything really changed all that much. So if we focus on... Uh, AP testing specifically and track some of the ways that it has uh, expanded its reach and embedded itself more into K through 12 education, you know, obviously really just high school. Uh, how has that test expanded its reach? What are some takeaways that we should be focusing on there? I think the use of it as an indicator of the quality of, of high schools is, is a terrible mistake. Um, it's created a lot of lists that are better at measuring the wealth of a community than they are the quality of the school. So I think that's been an abuse of the AP tests. The AP tests themselves um, are often criticized as being far too reliant on multiple choice Um and actually taking kids away from a better, more enriched educational experience. I personally had experience with both the IB and the AP. 
I think the IB is a far better alternative, um, although it is a little bit more expensive because you're paying for more than just tests. Um, and I think that there's been some valid criticism of kids being pushed into taking the exams who really aren't well prepared in order to um, increase the status of the school so that the school can report out numbers um, that are much higher um, than they probably should be. It, it's caused a lot of stress among kids because as colleges look at the number of kids that take these courses as an indicator as to whether or not they should accept the student, what's happened is rather than just taking one or two AP courses um, in which the student is interested, what happens is they try to cram in as much as they possibly can so that you'll have students who become very, very stressed because they're taking up to eight AP courses um, in the senior year. And some of some of the students starting to take those uh, those tests and the courses as early as the middle school year. I mean, if what the AP test is, is a measure of what you should know in college, it becomes rather ludicrous to expect that to be a standard for a middle school student of 13 or 14, or even a freshman in high school. If we get even more granular and track just David Coleman and his influence on College Board, we start to see some interesting connections, in my opinion. Uh, David Coleman, for context, is often regarded as one of the main influences and uh, overseers of the creation of the Common Core Standards, which have guided curriculum and testing in the U.S. since at least 2010. Uh, He then took that work to College Board, and during his tenure, we saw the SAT test get an overhaul, ending up reflecting many of the established Common Core Standards that Coleman helped create. Uh, So what sort of impact has Common Core had on our understanding of high stakes testing in K through 12 and how has that directly and indirectly influenced test curation by third parties like College Board even without the direct influence of of David Coleman leading the charge Yeah I mean what happened was um within the context of race to the top the common core emerged and everything was very rushed there was no real vetting of the standards David Coleman himself was not a K to 12 educator. the A lot of the people that were part of the process had very little experience with kids. Um, a lot of the standards were, were really inappropriate. It was just sort of yanking reading levels up higher than they should be. Um, and so what started to happen was because all of the states were trying to grab the money through race to the top and Arnie Duncan was out there cheerleading for the Common Core as was Jeb Bush schools weren't prepared with the kinds of assessments they needed. So what wound up happening was there was a growing influence of privatization as um, companies like the College Board, um, nonprofits that created assessments, as well as for-profits that created assessments like Pearson, started to push in to the K-12 sector in states. So all of a sudden... New assessments had to be created um, to meet the mandate for federal testing, and they needed to be looped in to the Common Core. 
And so all of a sudden, states were not producing assessments anymore, but what they were doing instead was outsourcing to companies to create massive assessments for kids um, beginning in grade three all the way through the high school years. How should we be thinking about the quite literal connection of David Coleman being um, you know, a common core creator and then taking those thoughts and leading the charge for uh, adapting common core standards to uh, the SAT test and to College Board? Uh, you know, what, what should we be taking away from that connection and how should we be applying uh, that granular example to a broader connection between uh, the commercialization of education and the way that uh, our policy gets, uh, I guess, morphed into um, a tangible change from third-party organizations like a college board? Well, the real problem is that all of these tests are such high-stakes tests. Um, interestingly enough, a lot of colleges are now starting to recognize the problem and they're moving away from requiring the SATs. And it's not only in, in um, uh, you know, sort of lower tier colleges. We're talking about colleges across the board, even some highly competitive colleges who are starting to say, look, we look at the research, the best indicator of how a student will do in college is the grades that they achieved or are the grades that they achieved in high school. So, you know, they're looking more at overall performance of the kids uh, during the high school year rather than just a testing event. Um, and a lot of these commercial assessments, too, have been used for other high-stakes purposes, such as the evaluation of teachers. Um, they've been used to decide which schools should survive and which schools should be shut down. They've been used to rank and sort schools at the state level and assign grades without really any evidence that these tests should be used for those purposes. And that is the biggest problem of all. There is nothing wrong with some standardized testing in schools, right? If it's used for the right purposes. I can remember when our three daughters were in elementary school, they uh, would yearly take the Iowa test. It was a low stress event. It was not used for high stakes purposes, but it gave us as parents an indication of where our kids stood nationally. Um, as well as, um, you know, some indication of, of the job that the school was doing. Certainly NAEP, which is, um, which is the National Assessment of Education Progress uh, and is not produced by third-party vendor, gives us a good indicator of how our states are doing. So, you know, I don't want to make the argument that all standardization is a terrible thing. But when these tests are used for a purpose for which they have were never intended, um, which is high stakes purposes, all of a sudden that's when they become problematic. So the high stakes use makes them popular, <laughs> right? Um, and brings their name forward as, as tests and exams. However, at the same time, it's doing a real disservice to kids and to teachers and to schools um, that become subject to 
having very important decisions made about their existence based on a faulty, a faulty measurement. You know, it's, um, it's like the, I can't think of the name of it right now, but that malaria drug, right? That all of a sudden people wanted to use for COVID and that President Trump was, was saying was going to be the cure. Well, there's nothing wrong with using that particular drug to combat malaria. There is a problem, though, when you start to use it for purposes for which it really is not appropriate. And um, that's the case, I think, with many of these standardized commercial tests. We'll get back to, uh, you know, what a potential different reality or solution would look like uh, to our current high stakes testing paradigm. I want to uh, briefly touch on the structure of College Board as an organization. So College Board is technically a nonprofit organization. When you look at their finances, though, in 2017, for example, after subtracting expenses uh, from their over $1 billion in revenue, there's still a solid almost $140 million uh, left over in profit, I guess. Uh, so with that money going into millions in payouts for their executives, um, David Coleman making over a million dollars a year as president, how should we understand College Board and its contemporaries, uh, you know, other nonprofits, um, as, you know, institutions within the education world? How should we be uh, talking about uh, where they really fit into the education sphere and how their nonprofit status plays into that dynamic? Well, it's, you know, it's nonprofit in name only. I mean, that amount of money that Coleman is making is obscene. You know, it's inappropriate. It's totally out of line, for example, with any of the salaries that are made at the International Baccalaureate Organization or most other nonprofits. You know, what happens is it really becomes just a money grab. And because colleges have required so many students to take the SAT, essentially, you know, the college board has everybody over a barrel. There are families who really have a hard time paying for those tests. And for the college board to be charging what it charges in order to be able to create those huge profits to pay out those salaries, is it's unethical. There's, uh, in my opinion, there is no other better adjective to describe that practice than the word unethical. Um, I remember when Coleman started, I believe about then his salary was, his beginning salary was $750,000. At the time, even that was ridiculous. The fact that it's grown to over a million is, is horrible. And, um, you know, I, I think the public should be aware of it. I mean, this is a guy who has built a career without any real expertise in anything that he is doing and now <laughs> and now is is making over a million dollars a year i mean it boggles my mind <laughs> it really boggles my mind do you see that same dynamic play out in any other uh, major nonprofits in the education space or is this something that is unique uh, to college board and what is the dynamic we should be analyzing there Look, I mean, I've, I'm familiar with most of the nonprofits um, that are in the K through 12 space. There are for-profit organizations, like, for example, K-12, which is an online charter school uh, service. You probably see salaries like that there. 
But again, that is a for-profit organization and one with, frankly, a terrible reputation. Um, I know of no other nonprofit CEO or president who is making that kind of money. And my guess is if you look at the total management structure of College Board, you probably see there are other individuals who are maybe not making as much as Mr. Coleman, but probably close. So if we have both high payouts for executives in a lot of these nonprofit organizations, uh, but also the the barrier to entry for the students uh, can often be high, uh, how should we begin to communicate uh, a version of this relationship where that gap is lessened, where the funds in these nonprofits are funneled back into their core mission, which is providing students more opportunities uh, to access education, to advance their education, and to uh, you know gain college credit to uh, potentially reach higher opportunities in higher education. What would that reimagined dynamic look like? You know, how do we get that into the nonprofit space when the nonprofit itself, as the organization, is already supposed to be ameliorating that dynamic? I think what has to happen is that the monopoly that the College Board has um, over over college entrance exams has to be broken. I think the move that we're seeing now of more colleges saying, hey, the SAT is optional is a good thing. Essentially, um, the policies of the college board would be set by the board um, that oversees the college board. I don't know who the members of that board are. Um, Like other nonprofit boards, they're appointed members. They are not elected members. Um, and, but I, th- I think news stories that maybe talk about what we've been talking about today are really important to shedding some light and um, for having public pressure be put on, on the college board to walk away from these excesses and do a better job of serving students in the way that you would expect a nonprofit to do that. Let's talk on the specific uh, policy that has reaffirmed a lot of these dynamics over the years. How have our political leaders and their educational policy over the last several decades led the charge for some of this commercialization in education we've seen since No Child Left Behind? And what about their reasoning and justification helped bolster this fusion of private and public interests in education at an accelerated pace? I think there were a few things that have been happening. Um, with No Child Left Behind, what that brought to us, of course, is is testing. Testing, testing, and more testing, and testing as the measure of the quality of a school. Um, and what happened was, um, as this high-stakes testing began, states had to scramble to find vendors in order to produce the tests and to produce tests that were statistically reliable and valid, you know, at least to the best extent possible. So that was sort of the beginning. Where everything really accelerated was with Race to the Top. Uh, Two things were happening with Race to the Top. One was... um, even more higher stakes use of tests to evaluate teachers. Um, But um, also 
what was happening was a lot of neoliberal ideas uh, came in with the Obama administration. And these ideas said that um, business could do it better <laughs> than, than the public sector. And that if only public schools were more like businesses, if only we had more competition um, from schools outside the public school system, specifically from charter schools, that somehow um, everything would improve. And so it was aptly named Race to the Top, right? The idea behind Race to the Top being that those very best schools would survive. The schools that were not as good um, would go away and that eventually this would be the tide that would lift all boats. Well, guess what? It never happened. <laughs> um, but what happened instead was we started to see this real burrowing of the private sector in, and the language of the private sector in public schooling. And so you still see a lot of the leaders of organizations that, for example, promote charter schools and vouchers using the language of the business community. And it's very, very sad because a lot of, of this, especially around school closings, um, really affects kids. I mean, we're going to release a report in just a couple of weeks where we really probed into the database of charter schools. And we found that if you look at the 15-year mark, 50% of all charter schools are gone. If you look at the 10-year mark, it's 40%. So what starts to happen after a while is you have this constant turmoil and churn of schools so that kids, especially in the inner city, find themselves sometimes going to two, three, four, even five different schools before they graduate. Um, and that's not good for communities. At the same time, what happens also is that as all of this competition occurs in our inner cities, schools start to close, right? So whether they be charter schools or public schools or voucher schools, after a while, they're all competing with each other. They don't have enough kids to survive. The school shuts down. And sometimes you find whole neighborhoods that don't have a public school in them anymore. So it's, you know, it's the whole idea that um, schools would somehow be better if they were run more like businesses um, came from a race to the top and even prior to race to the top. And the truth of the matter is, is, is the ideas haven't worked. You know, we've been embarking on this experiment for a few decades now, and we're not seeing any tremendous increase, for example, in academic indicators. Um, in fact, if you take a look at NAEP, what you see is that NAEP scores have been sliding, not improving. You know, nevertheless, now we've developed a lot of vested interests, whether they be the vested interests of the college board, other testing organizations, of the charter school community, um, of people like Betsy DeVos. Um, and so even though we're not seeing any benefit from these policies, they still seem to forge on. Some of them have disappeared. The idea, for example, of evaluating teachers by test scores, which was a very silly idea that I fought as a high school principal, um, that's pretty well disappeared. But some of the others are 
are still hanging around. Now, it, it will be interesting to see what happens after the pandemic. Remember, um, the mandate for every child being tested, um, the federal mandate disappeared under COVID. I mean, it was simply unsustainable. Kids were not in in-person schooling when um, when they would normally be tested. Uh, whether or not that comes back this year remains to be seen. And the Democratic Party platform, at least in its draft, has moved away from the idea of mandated standardized testing as a way to, um, you know, measure the quality of schools. So it will be interesting to see whether it is still as popular two years from now as it was before the pandemic. You mentioned briefly that you were uh, the principal of a school and had to uh, deal with some of these policy changes a little more materially. Uh, Can you just walk us through some of your experiences with uh, these educational policies firsthand? Um, I think it'll help to uh, communicate exactly that intersection between policy and how it ends up uh, bringing high stakes testing and a, uh, a sense of commercialization to the educational process, uh, you know, all the way from administration to um, the, the educators themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. I was a high school principal at the height of Race to the Top, and I will tell you, it was absolutely horrific. Horrific enough that I finally wound up retiring a little earlier than I would have if it had not been for these policies. Um, the, the worst was, worst idea, in my opinion, was the idea of using commercialized test scores in order to evaluate teachers. And I'll, let me explain why. One of the things that I tried to do as principal Um, was to make sure that all kids were exposed to the best curriculum that we had and to reduce tracking in the school. Uh, I ran a school that was an integrated school, and when I took it over, there was a big difference um, in the demographic makeup of the kids in the lower track class as opposed to the higher track class. So what we tried to do was to really level up with all kids. And we used the International Baccalaureate program in order to be able to do that because it was a program that was accessible um, to all kids um, and not just to your tip-top students. And I became extraordinarily concerned because I knew that if test scores were going to be used to evaluate teachers, then that very important reform that we were engaging in was going to be put at risk. If teachers started to look at their students as producers of scores that would either result in their losing their job or keeping their job, um, because that was part of this whole race to the top idea that you would fire the teachers whose students did not produce the highest test scores, I knew that was going. what was going to happen was teachers would look at their class rosters and say, hey, wait a minute, I don't want this kid in my class. They're, you know, if I have, you know, all of, all of the kids in my class that struggle a little bit, that maybe don't come to school as regularly as they should, that come from low-income households and don't tend to produce the high test scores, if they could potentially cost me my job, why would I want to continue with this reform where 
we're trying to bring all students together in integrated classrooms and give all students a high level of challenge. And, you know, I found that to be a frightening idea. And I think it was an unintended consequence of these policies that were created by people that frankly, you know, had never taught themselves, including Arne Duncan. I mean, he was the CEO of Chicago schools, but he was never a teacher, nor did he have a degree in teaching. And so, and then on top of that, you had the Common Core and all of a sudden the Regents exams, which I thought were really, New York State Regents exams were really pretty good end of year tests created by teachers. All of a sudden they weren't good enough anymore. And the curriculum had to be overhauled and the math curriculum turned into a nightmare. And the English curriculum became dominated not by good literature, but by informational text. And then the English regions came out and it was so darned hard. What they did was, I mean, it, it was it was really crazy. And we saw this with the math test too, is they created these cut scores that were so low that kids could pretty well guess on the tests and pass them, right? Because then they were using the tests for the high stakes purposes of deciding who could graduate from high school. So it just turned into a mess, um, a real mess. And I got to a point where, you know, it broke my heart. And I mean, I was good principal. I was recognized as the New York State High School Principal of the Year in 2013. And I was given award as the New York State Educator of the Year in 2010. Um, it ran a great school, uh, but I felt as though I was no longer in control. My teachers were no longer in control. There were all of these people from the outside that were telling us what to do. And what they were telling us to do was something that I believed would eventually hurt our kids. And then at that point at 2015, at the age of 62, I, I retired. I said, that's it. I can't do it anymore. Well, congratulations on your awards, by the way. But uh, yes, thank you for the context there. Thank you. So let's take all of this conversation and start to tie it up into a bow. Uh, how do orgs like College Board and its contemporaries fit into the trend of broader commercialization in education? What has been the overall effect of um, outsourcing testing influence to third-party organizations, whether profit or non-profit, um, and uh, what has been the effect of these orgs influencing testing and higher education access, if you had to sum it up? Well, I, I think what they, look, I'm, I'm not totally against standardized tests, as we said before. I, I think that they can have a place in education, but they can have a high stakes place in education. And, you know, they should be minimalized. You know, they're, on the one hand, if all we had were teacher-created tests, one could make the argument that we really were unsure about quality, right? I mean, were people just creating tests that were really easy and, and pushing kids along through school? Um, so I, I, I don't think it's a terrible thing to have some snapshots uh, that are more standardized. Um, and NAEP is a perfect example of a test that fits that bill, right? Um, nobody's making money off NAEP, at least that I know of. Um, it has a good reputation. 
it is a low stakes test so that we get some good information from NEEP as to how our schools are doing without kids feeling that, oh my gosh, if I if I do badly on this test, my teacher is going to be fired or I'm not going to get into college or, um, you know, a, a variety of other outcomes that, um, that are not helpful. Um, even No Child Left Behind, when it began, and it was only given in fourth grade and eighth grade and once in high school, you know, again, it, and it wasn't used for high stakes purposes in the beginning, in the very beginning. That was not, you know, that was not the end of, end of the world. Um, so I guess my recommendation would be, one, don't use these tests for high stakes purposes, and two, scale them back. Um, Public education should be informed by public educators and not by third parties that are going to make a lot of money <laughs> um, by testing kids to death. Um, you know, we need to trust our public schools again. I, um, and if we're going to be spending money, let's spend our money on improving opportunities and closing the opportunity gaps among schools rather than constantly focus on an achievement gap that is created in large part by tests. Like you said, testing won't go away. Assessment is, to some degree, a necessary part of education. Um, but is there a place for private orgs, nonprofit or profit, uh, in our educational system, uh, especially if we just stay in the context of testing, of administering tests, writing the tests, uh, and uh, connecting with our public institutions. What are your thoughts there? Yes, no, why, why not? Well, you know, I think as I, as I, as I just mentioned, um, a small footprint, yes. A large footprint, no. Um, and high stakes purposes, definitely not. <laughs> I don't think I can say it any better than that. <laughs> Summed it up. That's good. <laughs> Thanks for the concise answer. And last main question for you. Uh, how should we begin to envision a healthy relationship then between third party private orgs and our public institutions to support children and support their education in truly egalitarian and accessible ways. Do you think it's possible to have such a relationship and how should we begin to imagine it or actually work to get to that point? Well, listen, public um, public and private relationships in schools are, are always going to continue. You're going to have bus vendors, right? And people who are bringing kids back and forth on buses. Um, certainly school districts are not going to create their own textbooks. A lot of the supplementary material will also be uh, produced by vendors. I, I think the best and most healthy relationship would be one in which vendors are constantly seeking feedback from the field um, rather than trying to dominate the field, right? Um, and, you know, I, I, there's always going to be that public-private relationship, but... I think what needs to be broken is the idea that school systems themselves, in order to be effective, must mimic those private organizations. Um, and they themselves must be in competition 
uh, schools must be in competition with each other. Um, so it, it's, it's complicated. It, there's not a simple answer to this um, because what's happened is the thinking of the private, of privatization um, and the belief that somehow we would do schools better if only they were like businesses, more like businesses. That's really the problem. The problem is not school districts um, buying a standardized test to use for low stakes purposes or school districts going to um, a publishing house in order to purchase textbooks. Um, that's, you know, I think that's an, an acceptable partnership between businesses and, and schools. All right, Carol Burris, Executive Director at the Network for Public Education, thank you for your thoughts, for breaking down your perspectives on this connection between private orgs, our public institutions, and the broader trend of commercialization in education. Uh, any final thoughts or anything we haven't touched on that you want to leave our audience with? No, uh, I think, well, uh, yes, I'm going to take that. Yes, <laughs> take, take the bait. Yeah. <laughs> I, the, my final thought would be, let's begin to, to treasure our public schools again. Uh, let's move away from sort of the era where we've beat up public schools and have accused them of everything, of causing poverty to, um, you know, uh, to not producing the workers that our country wants. You know, public schools exist within a context, and the context is a very unfair and inequitable American society. Public schools don't cause poverty, and they cannot be expected to cure poverty only if we try to go after poverty, right? And address it by doing things like raising the minimum wage and having social programs in communities that work, doing a better job of integrating our communities so we don't have large neighborhoods um, in which poverty is the only thing that people know. You know, then I think we're going to start to see some of the improvements um, that we want to see in public education. And nobody wants to hear that because that work is very hard. But it's really the only work that's worth doing. And if we continue to believe that if we just pressure our public schools more, we're going to get outstanding outcomes for all students, we are wasting a lot of treasure and we're wasting a lot of time. Carol Burris, thank you again for your thoughts on the program. I really appreciate it. Uh, if folks want to find out more about the Network for Public Education and get more plugged in to the work y'all are doing, how can they get in touch? Where can they learn more? Uh, we have a website, of course, which is www.networkforpubliceducation.org. And you can sign up to on that uh, space to get our emails, to um, engage in our action alerts, and to read what I believe are really outstanding reports. Appreciate it, Carol. Thanks again. Thank you.
And that does it for today's episode of Ratified. Folks, thank you again for tuning in. And thank you for being patient with the content. I promise not to keep you waiting this long for the next piece. Make sure you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Like I said, we've got a channel on there now. So as soon as you hit that subscribe button, you'll have full access to all previous episodes as well as notifications when we drop new ones. You can also find this on our website. You can go to marketscale.com slash industries. We've got a little podcast network tab there. You can find my show there. It's got its own little homepage with a link to every piece and its corresponding article. And of course, shoot me an email at daniel.litwin at marketscale.com with any story ideas or feedback. You can also find me on Twitter at voice of B2B. Again, voice of B2B. Shoot me a DM. You know I keep those open because I love to engage with the folks. All right. Thanks again for tuning in. I'm Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and we'll catch you on the next intersection of business and politics on Ratified. Till next time.